everyone. Welcome back to Critical Care Scenarios. Uh, I am Brandon Noto, back here with Brian Bowling. Hey. And today we're going to look at some more good, meaty, neurocritical care goodness. Um, we have with us uh, Tom Lawson. He's a nurse practitioner in the neurocritical care unit at uh, OSU Wexner Medical Center. Um, and he's going to kind of show us the ins and outs of some of the some of the gnarly brain cases that we'll come across. Uh, so, Brian, you want to take us away? Yeah. Hey, uh, Tom, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So how this works is we're going to go through a case. You just kind of walk us through uh, how you would manage it. And we'll kind of talk about ins and outs of stuff along the way. All right. Sounds good. All right. So you get a call. Uh, I don't know how, how it works in your place. If you guys, uh, are you a primary service or a consult service? Do you admit patients or does neurosurgery admit them? In it's a, it's a mix. So okay. our, uh, a lot of our neurosurgical cases are admitted directly to neurosurgery and then we serve okay. as a consult. All right. So uh, how, however, that normally works out for you, you get a call about a patient who's in the emergency department, a 56 year old female who came in about an hour ago complaining of the worst headache of her life, uh, came on all of a sudden out of nowhere. Uh, she came in with just blinding pain. Um, medical history is pertinent for she is a pack-a-day smoker, uh, and she does have hypertension that is not greatly controlled. Um, she had a CT scan of her head that has revealed that she does have a subarachnoid hemorrhage, and they want to admit this lady to the ICU, so you've been called down to see her. Um, on your way down, what are your initial thoughts? What are, what are you planning for and thinking about uh, before you even lay eyes on the patient? So, um, so it sounds like we already have uh, confirming data that this is, in fact, a subarachnoid hemorrhage. Uh, she has the risk factors for this to be an aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage as opposed to something that's traumatic. Um, the worst headache of the life is like the, the major keyword to consider uh, aneurysm rupture. And then she has these risk factors that you mentioned with her being a smoker and uh, a hypertensive patient. So as I'm uh, headed down to the emergency department, the main things that I'm thinking about when I you know, walk around the corner and look at her is, is she sick or not? It, does she need intubated? Is she comatose? Or is she just kind of laying there with a terrible headache? Okay. So when you come in, you see her, she appears pretty ill. Um, she is talking to you. Um, but she just does the, she looks clinically sick. Um, you would describe her as critically ill appearing. Um, she tells you that she has this horrible headache. Um, it's just, it's not going away. She just feels lightheaded and kind of crappy all over. Um, she is tachycardic at about 115 to 120. It seems like it's sinus tach. Um, she is mildly hypotensive, uh, with a BP of, uh, we'll say, 90 over 50. Sure. So uh, my a lot of these people come in actually hypertensive, and so I want to make sure the blood pressure is not over 140 to 160 or so uh, to prevent re-bleeding. But in her case, with her being uh, kind of a, a looking like she's getting uh, a bit shocky, uh, I'm concerned that she is um, developing something from a sympathetic storm uh, that includes uh, – People could go into shock and have a Takasubo's cardiomyopathy um, just as a, a neurogenic or a, a neurogenic source to 
what essentially is a, a cardiogenic shock. So um, I am going to um, probably give her a little bit of fluid, but plan on moving towards something like norepinephrine uh, relatively quick. Um, also, um, is she hypoxic at all? Um, she's right now, she's on nasal cannula, um, four liters, we'll say, and she's setting sort of 92 to 94%. So not great, but not awful. Yeah, so she doesn't sound like she needs intubated for hypoxia right now or for um, airway protection due to her mental status uh, at this point. So um, I'm going to want to make sure that um, uh, to, to kind of continue the workup and it probably anticipating getting neurosurgery in here to uh, decide about how to secure this presumed aneurysm, um, we'll probably need to get a CT angiogram of the uh, of the brain, uh, mainly looking for the source of uh, of a suspected aneurysm somewhere around the circular willis branching vessels. Now, Tom, if it's not an aneurysm, what could be the cause of bleeding? And I mean, how is it going to affect what you're doing with the patient? So I look at subarachnoid hemorrhage as kind of two distinct diseases with blood layering in the same area. Um, So an aneurysmal subarachnoid has its own kind of distinct set of complications. And I treat that as a separate disease process versus uh, traumatic subarachnoid, you know, car crashes, baseball bats, kind of any any sort of thing like that. Um, A lot of the um, complications of subarachnoid hemorrhage, the aneurysmal complications, they start coming days later. uh, But if we suspect it's aneurysmal, one of the early priorities that we need to at least consider is securing the aneurysm with either a clipping or a coiling procedure. So if it's an aneurysm, you need to secure it, and you're maybe more concerned about some of these other complications a bit down the road. Yeah. So one of the main early complications um, that really leads to a huge increase in mortality is re-bleeding within the first six or eight hours or so. Most of these people that do re-bleed after uh, aneurysm rupture, um, uh, uh, many of the people that re-bleed will ultimately die from this. So you're waiting to get your CTA and you're going to, you're going down. You haven't actually looked at the CT head yet. You just kind of took it on the emergency department's word. Uh, So you're looking at the CT head. Now, what are you looking for when you, when you look at the images? Um, Sure. I want to look at um, a one just to kind of avoid um, diagnostic bias issues like she doesn't have a subarachnoid because somebody told me she does. She has it because she actually has it, I guess would be a kind of a cheeky way to put it. Um, so I want to look at it and confirm in my eye, is this actually a subarachnoid hemorrhage? So where, where does the blood layer out? So the kind of the classic morphology um, on the axial CT cuts down in the kind of right at the skull base, bottom of the brain, across those uh, basilar cisterns, is the hanging chicken sign. And so you get, I feel like I'm gesturing here, and I know it's just an audio podcast, but you get kind of two wings sticking out the side, two kind of chicken legs sticking out the bottom, and a short neck sticking out the top, if all of those basilar cisterns are opacified with blood. Uh, So um, 
so one, is, is it a subarachnoid? Where is it? So is it um, diffuse? Is it localized to kind of just an anterior spot? Is it also associated with intraventricular hemorrhage or intraparenchymal hemorrhage? And also, and, and with her being awake and talking right now, this is a, a little bit less of a concern, but I'm also going to have an eye out for developing hydrocephalus. And so in there, I'm going to be looking at the, the width of the third ventricle and then the presence of uh, the temporal horns of the lateral ventricles. So there, as you scroll down lower in the CT and follow the lateral ventricles, it should just be sort of like a C-shaped C slit down in the temporal, in the middle of the temporal lobes. And if those are starting to look a little bit bigger, um, that's going to make me think of hydrocephalus, and then it'll be clinically significant if she begins to become obtunded. And if that's the case, uh, then we're going to look to get a, a external ventricular drain or EVD put in pretty pretty soon. Okay. Um, yeah, so you're right. It's a little hard to describe images on an audio podcast, so we will try to find some images to put up on the website and link to those in the show notes. Um, so when you, when we talk about this patient, is there, can you talk about scoring uh, or grading of subarachnoid hemorrhage and, and how that plays into management a little bit? Yeah, sure. So there's basically two categories. I mean, there's all, there's dozens of different scores, uh, but there's two categories. And so one is the risk for mortality. And so here we're looking basically at, uh, different categorizations, of the exam or of the, the GCS. So uh, either the Hunt and Hess score or the WFNS, the World Federation of Neurosurgeons score, um, essentially they're one through five scores with one being um, mild headache or nuchal rigidity or GCS of five without other neurologic deficits. And that pretends a very low mortality outcome, um, graduated all the way down through people that are you know, stuporous or have very low GCSs or are in a coma with very high mortality risk. And the second category of scoring would be something like the Fisher or the modified Fisher score. And um, this gives us a, a risk factor for developing uh, the complication that we alluded to a little bit earlier, uh, vasospasm. So um, the scoring looks at the presence or absence of intraventricular hemorrhage, and then the thickness of the layering of the, the hemorrhage throughout those uh, cisterns. And so if you don't see much or any hemorrhage down there, that's a, that's a lower score and a lower risk of vasospasm. And then the thicker the blood and then the, the presence of intraventricular hemorrhage uh, results in much higher risk of vasospasm. And the, the peak period to develop this is in the three or four day range through about the 10 to 14 and sometimes out to 21 day range after the onset of symptoms. So, I mean, I guess we'll get to that a little bit later, but that's the, the implication for the, those scoring systems. Okay, great. Yeah. So you're looking at the CT and you do see uh, a little concern for hydrocephalus. Um, she definitely does have subarachnoid blood. Um, and then, like I said, you, a little concern for hydrocephalus. Um, the neurosurgeons have been consulted. The CTA 
reveals what appears to be uh, an aneurysm in the circle of Willis. So they say, we're going to take her to the IR suite to try and coil that aneurysm. In the meantime, the nurse calls you and says, you're over at the desk looking at stuff and talking with the neurosurgeon that calls you and says, so she is less responsive now. Um, She's sleepier, more confused. Uh, There seems to be a neuro change. In my mind, this is an indication for uh, stat, stat, head CT. And the main, so when I order any kind of imaging or lab or anything, the you should really be like, what what question am I asking of this CAT scan or of this lab or whatever the case is? And the main um, uh, branching point that I have that the CT will answer for me is, did the hydrocephalus that we had a little bit of before get worse and that's the cause of her uh, neuro change? Or has she rebled and or... or uh, I guess has she, has she rebled, and is that the cause of this? So, um, I will I'd walk in there and look and ask myself again: Does she need intubated now, and is she hemodynamically stable in order to go for this superstat CT? And there's no need for an angio here. This is just a dry head CT. Uh, yeah, I think once we already have the CTA and we've figured out, okay, yes, this is a this is an aneurysm. Um, the the decision branching on the the CTA at this point is um, is it something that's you know is it wide neck or small neck does it, does she need a craniotomy and a clip or does she need an endovascular procedure uh, for some, uh, some sort of coil placement or endovascular exclusion of this aneurysm uh, and we're probably uh, and it sounds like she came in at the time of her CT so I don't think we're really in that vasospasm window yet CTA can also point towards or away from vasospasm. So I don't really think we need another CTA. And I think just the, the risk and benefit of a, a second contrast load an hour later or something is not worthwhile. Now, this is digressing a little bit. Are there times when the CTA will not uh, answer your questions about the aneurysm and you might need some other study? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So the CTA, so basically what you're doing is, you know, you have contrast inside the blood vessels. It's timed for the arterial phase in the head. And so all you're looking at is you're, you're opacifying whatever is in the arterial circulation of the head, or I guess the top of the neck and the bottom of the head. That's our area of interest. So if somebody had, has an aneurysm and it bled and then it thrombosed off, the, the CTA won't show you an aneurysm because blood and contrast won't go into that aneurysm which is in fact there, but just excluded at this minute or this moment from the circulation. Uh, so at that point, um, moving towards the gold standard of a uh, angiogram uh, and then possibly follow-up imaging days or a week later to uh, look for the exact location of morphology of that aneurysm would be warranted. Is there any role for MRI, MRA? Um, it's, it's possible. I think it probably varies depending on how fast, uh, you're able to get, uh, MR, uh, imaging at your, your, at your institution. Um, I'm used to that being relatively slow. Uh, and the question that I have at this point is pretty urgent. Um, CTA actually has much better sensitivity for, um, uh, cerebral aneurysm than does MRA. 
I normally think of MRIs being much more helpful. Um, and we do get MRAs at, at times, but I think the, the go-to would be the CTA. Um, as to MRI, um, again, in the kind of the looking at the timing of this, this patient seems really sick and probably has um, problems that need to be addressed before I would send somebody like this to an MRI. I've kind of nicknamed it the, the tube of death because they're gone and their monitoring is a little bit less and they often take 30 to 60 minutes and it's often some other department. And um, I, I really like my people to be at least moderately stable before signing off on heading down to MRIs. All right. So you get in to see her and you find that she is, um, I mean, pretty, pretty well obtunded at this point. Um, her map is dropped down to the fifties. Um, she's still tacky, um, but she will respond to vigorous stimuli, but she's not really awake and talking anymore. All right. It hurts me to say, I think we need to go ahead and innovate her. I'd I'd like to avoid it in a lot of cases because once you do that, you really exclude yourself from a, a very precise narrow exam, which is a, a really good uh, indicator of you know, just if you're following the patient, are they better or worse? I don't know. They're on propofol. Uh, so with her being this obtunded, uh, when I'm looking at kind of the sequence of events, what I, what I really want to do is get her to CT and say, is her hydrocephalus worse? Let's put the EVD in. But she sounds like somebody who's not a great candidate to take to CT right now. So I would go ahead uh, and start norepi and um, intubate her, see how things are for a couple minutes, maybe like two or five minutes after that. And if everything's still stable, then head off for a repeat CT. Okay. Now, at your institution, do patients routinely get intubated and anesthetized for angio? Um, not necessarily. I, I think it depends. Um, and I, I'm not the, the one who is the decider on that decision, but I think it depends. One, are they wiggly? Can, can you get through the procedure without it? Uh, and two, how precise uh, when, you know, when the the, neuro, the endovascular neurosurgeons are putting in these little microcatheters into teeny tiny arteries. How, um, what would happen if the patient moved their head a little bit? Um, so I think generally if it's just an angio, no, but if it's uh, an intervention, uh, which, you know, we would have this, they would be intubated for the procedure. Um, all right. So you, you intubate her and, um, She's now on norepi, getting a little more stable from a hemodynamic standpoint. Uh, and I guess you feel comfortable sending her to CT scanner. She goes to the CT scanner and you find out that her hydrocephalus is worsened. Um, so now what? So I think the very next thing we need to do is get her uh, CSF diverted. So uh, in my institution, it's generally the neurosurgery residents who put in EVDs. So I would get one of, one of those on the phone ASAP and uh, ask them to come and put that in. It usually goes on the, the right side of the brain. Um, I think it's handy because most people are right-handed, but it's really because the right brain is non-dominant. Uh, and there are some complications associated with that. It's somewhere around an uh, 8%, um, according to the literature, in my experience it's less, but an 8% risk of uh, uh, like a hemorrhage from the EVD itself. Uh, that could be some subdural bleeding if the dura is not properly punctured, and then there can be some 
interparenchymal hemorrhage along the track of the EBD. Uh, but uh, risk and benefit wise, I think it's definitely worthwhile to do it because she has what I would categorize as um, clinically significant hydrocephalus. Okay. So they come and then put an EBD in uh, and they're, uh, they're successful. They get that placed and they're draining some CSF off to relieve her hydrocephalus. Um, and now they feel comfortable taking her to Angio. So they're off. They go to Angio. Um, they come back to you a few hours later. They said that they were able to coil, um, an aneurysm in the circle. So she's secured now. Um, her hemodynamics have improved somewhat. Uh, she is still on a little bit of norepi, but, uh, otherwise looking better. Um, so now kind of walk us through what you do next. Um, so you have a secured aneurysm, uh, and more stable. What are your, what are your thoughts and what are your kind of goals for moving forward? Okay. So, I mean, the first thing I'm going to do when I walk in that room is, um, hold any sedation if she has it and then re-examine her and, and see, I mean, she could, now that we've addressed her hydrocephalus, she could be she could have GCSs of, you know, 14 or 15 and, um, we could potentially extubate her right now. Um, we'll, we'll be, we'll be keeping that EVD for a while, um, probably a, over a week. Um, I want to keep an eye on her hemodynamics and now she's in the ICU. So, um, I mean, that's just the normal standard of care. Um, but how does, how does all that look right now? So she's on, um, we'll say she's on point oh four of norepi and um her map is 65 um her heart rate's down around 100 sinus the sinus tack um so looking much better uh how's her how's her neuro exam so you hold her propofol she does wake up um follows commands moves everything equally um so do you want to try her on pressure support uh yeah i'll put her on a spontaneous okay. mode make sure she's on you know only five or six a peep and everything still looks okay from a respiratory standpoint uh, but the main reason that we intubated her in the first place was not for you know ARDS or hypoxia or, or lung type problems we intubated her for neuro problems and that's better so we could probably get her extubated right now all right so you uh, extubate her to nasal cannula she's doing well um, she's able to follow commands. She's more or less oriented. She, you know, the last time she remembers anything, she was in the emergency room and now she's in the ICU and has a new haircut. Um, <laughs> but other than that, uh, she seems, she seems to be neurologically intact. Um, what are you going to do? So she's still on a little norepi. You said you thought this was a little bit of cardiogenic shock, like a Takasubo type of situation. Um, moving forward, how are you going to manage that? So I would go ahead and order an echo on her. Um, I, I, I want to look at the, uh, the LV function in particular. I mean, look at the whole thing, the valves and everything, but um, I would suspect that she's got a little bit of uh, myocardial stunning. Uh, that's typically something that's transient, just requires a little bit of supportive care. In some cases, a ton of supportive care, but either way, it's transient. And there's probably not much to do. I want to make sure that she's adequately hydrated. Uh, one of the, the, the core features of the management of somebody that um, has a subarachnoid is to avoid dehydration. Now, there used to be um, a term called Triple H therapy, was hypertension, hypervolemia, and hypernatremia. And it's uh, 
probably 15 or 20 years ago, uh, there was you know enough literature to say like we don't need to do all that. I mean, it used to be this this big production with people getting Swan Gans catheters and just slammed with fluid, and, and so um, it, it's really been modified now to just um, hypertension in order to deal with a vasospasm if we if we run into that and uvolemia. So I just want to make sure that she is um, adequately resuscitated. So I'll probably give her uh, some, uh, you know, a bolus of 0.9, put her in a little bit, bit of maintenance fluid, feed her. She can drink if she's um, awake enough to swallow. So what would your blood pressure goal be? Uh, now that this is secured, uh, my blood pressure goal would be uh, systolic less than 220 and then a map of just not low. So, I mean, we're not dealing with the the uh, the hypertension yet um but we may swing that way soon okay so you're not driving her pressure up with the presses you're just allowing them to go up and- not yet I, I would just allow her uh cerebral auto regulation to put her blood pressure where it wants it right now and so like i said with getting that echo and, and doing a little bit of uh, uh presser support will kind of prevent the hypotension uh, but as long as she's not like in a you know floor and heart failure type of a situation, I would kind of take a, a less is more approach um, on her cardiac and hemodynamic stuff. Okay. So you mentioned in the tri- triple H therapy, hypernatremia as well. Um, are you, are you, I know there's some controversy about this. Are you one of the guys who believes in sort of driving sodium up a little higher than normal or is that not really helpful. I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of a middle of the road guy on that. Um, I guess, where did her sodium start when she came in? Um, she was 136, let's say. Okay. So just fine. Just normal. Yeah. I'd probably just keep her in the, the 135, 145 range. At this point, I wouldn't start her on hypertonic saline or anything like that. Um, but I'm going to for sure get a sodium once a day and have a low threshold to to bump that up to more frequently, especially if her urine output picks up in the next couple of days. Okay. And you're concerned with what there with the urine output? Um, cerebral salt wasting. Okay. So um, there's, there's an issue with um, the, the, the brain signals down to the kidneys sometimes on these patients to um, basically dump fluid and dump solute at just a, a astronomical rate sometimes. And it, uh, it kind of portends developing uh, vasospasm. So that's one important issue with it. Uh, but the second is um, just to avoid hyponatremia and hypovolemia associated with salt wasting. I found when I talked to, to people, um, you know, residents that, that rotate through or fellows from uh, other services, like your general, like you've got a hyponatremic patient, what's the cause? And if it's anywhere but a neurocritical care unit, it's probably SIDH. And if you're in the neurocritical care unit, it's probably salt wasting. Now there's exceptions and it's just sort of like a silly rule of thumb almost, but this is a pretty common problem for subarachnoid patients to get. Yeah. And so how do you tease out, let's say, other than your rule of thumb, which I think is is reasonable, how do you tease out uh, looking at someone who's hyponatremic? Uh, is this cerebral salt wasting or is this SIADH? Or I guess it could be DI too, right? You, DI in the neuro ICU. Uh, yeah. DI is the other very common sodium problem that we encounter. So um, 
in terms of the the hyponatremic conditions, uh, salt wasting and SIDH, I, I really wish there was some sort of lab where you could just check it, and if it's high, it's one; if it's low, it's the other, or something. But it really comes down to a clinical evaluation of their fluid status. If they're hypovolemic, it's salt wasting, and if they're euvolemic, it's SIDH. And then the the DI that you mentioned. Uh, so in that case, the kidneys are are dumping water, but um, but holding on to the sodium. So uh, they'll have very high volume of dilute urine, uh, and then the serum sodium goes up. And in some cases, drastically elevated in DI. All right, great. Um, okay, so any other things that you're uh, sort of watching for in terms of complications? We've talked about vasospasm. We talked about rebleeding. Although I think the risk for that is uh, much lower now that she's secured. Um, what other things are you, do you put, are you putting these people on any kind of, uh, anti-epileptic drugs prophylactically or, um, yeah. Uh, one more thing on the vasospasm. I yeah. forgot to mention, um, nimodipine, um, that, so of, of all the stuff that we do, uh, that probably is the one thing that has the best base of evidence. Um, uh, it's a calcium channel blocker and it's uh, it doesn't actually prevent vasospasm, but through some mechanism that I don't think anybody's really figured out yet, it makes the outcomes of people that do get vasospasm better. So I forgot about it because it's just one of those things that we do on everybody and just shows up right. in the order set. And right. then you get three weeks of nimodipine. Um, uh, either you can split the dose uh, to every two-hour dosing or something, which is annoying, but it can help with the hypotension associated with it. And it's it's only nimodipine. It's not any of the other calcium channel blockers. Um, and then uh, moving on from there, um, frequent neurochecks. Um, uh, to uh, the main the main thing we look for is is like I said the cerebrovasospasm. Uh, oh, you mentioned uh, seizures or, or uh, epilepsy. Uh, there's kind of mediocre degree of evidence on whether or not you should uh, give somebody an anti-epileptic drug. Um, if they seized, for sure do it. If they didn't, uh, it's reasonable to uh, consider like a three to seven day course of, of kind of a moderately low dose of Keppra. We typically do it at least before they're secured, um, because if you can imagine somebody has a convulsive seizure with an, un with an unsecured aneurysm, um, the Valsalva and the convulsions associated with that uh, could lead to a re-rupture, which obviously, like I said, is, is bad news. Sure, sure. Okay, so we'll fast forward. It's a couple of days later, and you are you know, sitting in the unit and reviewing some stuff, and you get a call from the patient's nurse who says she's much more lethargic uh, than she has been. Her pressure is up. She's off the norepi now. Uh, maps are in the nineties. Um, she's normal sinus, uh, but she's much more lethargic. Uh, she seems to be disoriented when she's able to answer questions, but she's not able to answer questions all the time. Is her EVD still working? Okay. Uh, it seems to be the, the waveform is a little dampened, but it seems to be, and it will still drain. Okay. Um, that's, uh, checking out the EVD is one of the first things I can do because you don't have to the patient doesn't have to travel for that. Um, the, you know, especially if they have intraventricular hemorrhage, you just have a lot of clots coming out of a small tube. And so that can get 
clogged up and, and uh, lead to hydrocephalus. Um, I would uh, probably send this patient for uh, either a CT and CTA, or uh, the other thing that uh, that we have access to is transcranial Dopplers. Um, I think the the vascular imaging with either the CTA or a TCD is probably uh, where the money's at for a patient in this case where she's already already secured. We already pretty much know what's going on with her. It's whether or not she's developing vasospasm. So we need to look at the uh, the arteries with that. The TCD. Uh, it's it's a specialized ultrasound that looks through kind of thinner areas of bone on the skull, and it's it's a Doppler. It gives you a velocity of flow in uh, certain segments of the the cerebral arteries, and if the if there is vasospasm and narrowing of the arteries, you get higher velocities, and then you can correct that with uh, a Lindegard ratio, which basically divides the intracranial velocity with the uh, uh, extracranial carotid velocity to correct for a hyperdynamic function because a lot of these people are hypertensive either on their own or because we're doing that on purpose. Uh, the other one, the other test we can do is another uh, CTA, CT angiogram to look at the caliber of those vessels. Uh, and then if, uh, if presumably the either the velocities are up or the, the vessel calibers are down, um, I would want to uh, touch base with neurosurgery and, and see if they want to go back, or I guess uh, neuro-interventional neuro, neuro radiology, depending on how that's done at your institution, and look at some sort of intra-arterial um, uh, nicardipine or, or some sort of uh, endovascular as assessment as well as uh, therapy uh, for vasospasm. Okay. So you, you go and see her, and while we're, you're, put, you're putting in our orders, and while we're waiting for CT to be ready for her, you go and see her, and you notice that she does appear to be uh, more lethargic. She's weak on the right, um, and like I said, just really hard to, to awaken. Is there anything that you're going to do in the meantime while you're waiting for the scans, or just, uh, just try and get her to scan as fast as possible? Yeah, I think, so the, so the presumption is that she's having uh, symptomatic cerebral vasospasm. So if she has what essentially sounds like a, a, a MCA syndrome, uh, I think we it would be reasonable to go ahead, like I said, especially since her aneurysm secured, and augment her blood pressure up maybe 20 points on the systolic uh, to see if she has a clinical response. Basically, what we'd be doing is uh, increasing the arterial pressure uh, to try and drive more blood past a, it's not really stenotic, but a, the vasospasm or the, a narrow caliber artery, uh, presumably in this case, the, uh, the I think she said she was weak on the right, so the left MCA artery. And so you can get a, a pretty quick response from that. Uh, so there's, you know, Good differentiate between ischemia versus infarct, and so if you still catch it while it's ischemia, then you can you can save somebody that uh, before they develop um, an actual infarct with uh, you know a permanent stroke, ischemic stroke. Okay, so so how are you going to augment her pressure? Is it like a fluid bolus, or are you going to put her on pressors, or what do you? Um, do? I think it depends on how her her fluid status has looked. So you know, I said before we'd like to keep her uvolemic. We get very close eyes and nose on these people out for you know a week or more afterwards, 
uh, after the initial insult. Um, if I had any inclination that she was dry, I would I would start by giving her a liter or so of uh, normal saline. Uh, if her fluid balance was already positive and I didn't have any other reason to suspect that she was intravascularly dry, I'd probably just put her on phenylephrine. Okay. So, you, so we'll, we'll say she's reasonably euvolemic. Um, so you're going to, you put her on a phenylephrine drip or, or is this like a push bolus to see? Oh, I, I'd uh, probably response? just put her on a drip. Um, okay. I personally kind of save the, the, the pushes for people who are crashing right now. Okay. All right, so you put her on a little phenylephrine, and she does sort of come around. Uh, she wakes up a little bit. She's still pretty lethargic, uh, but she's moving that, um, I think we said right side, a little bit better. Now what? Does this change your approach? Do you, are you still going to go get a CTA, or is this? do you presume that she has vasospasm and move to some sort of treatment? I, I probably would uh, go ahead with the imaging. Okay. Um, not, not necessarily to satisfy my own curiosity, from a diagnostic standpoint, but sometimes it's helpful to get objective evidence when you're trying to convince somebody else to do something. And in this case, I I probably want uh, some intraarterial therapies from um, a, a neuroendovascular specialist. Okay, so she goes for a CTA, and you do notice that there is some looks like some mild narrowing of the left MCA. Um, and so you call neurosurgery and they say, sure. Yeah, we should take her to back to the angio suite. So they go back to the angio suite and she's gone for a little bit, comes back. They say, yeah, she did have, um, some vasospasm. We, um, gave her some verapamil, intraarterial verapamil, or you, I think you said narcartopene earlier. Uh, or, yeah. Or, I think verapamil is probably the main go-to. Um, yeah. Sometimes we, when we get really refractory cases, it's sort of throw the kitchen sink at them. Okay. Yeah. So I think my experience is we use, tend to use verapamil. Um, so, okay. So she gets verapamil or, or whatever calcium channel blocker intraarterially that you, uh, your institution uses and she's back and now looking more stable again. Does this change approach to future management? I don't know if there's any actual literature to support this, but in my experience, it seems like once people start having symptomatic vasospasm, they continue to have it. So, I mean, I don't know, maybe half or so of these people just kind of be fine from here out in terms of spasm, but a lot of them will continue to have it and almost need like a daily trip down to the the angio suite uh, to get more of this for Apamil. So uh, I guess that the, the way that it would change my management would be the uh, the clinical suspicion of the neuro change that happens later tonight or tomorrow sometime is, okay, yeah, we already pretty much know what this is, and she's just going to need to go back uh, to the endovascular suite. What about milrinone? Do you guys use uh, milrinone for these folks? Um, I think we're doing that on somebody right now, actually, in real life. Um, yeah, it's, Montreal. It's, yeah, yeah, it's um, it's not super common. Um, kind of save it for our our refractory cases, but there is uh, a protocol that came out of um, in Montreal back in I don't know ten years ago, maybe eight years ago, uh, where uh, milrinone uh, was given uh, intravenously uh, as both a bolus and infusion. And um, so just in the same way that you would, you know, you give no to somebody with heart failure, it would, it's a, 
uh, arterial dilator, um, dilate, use it to dilate the arteries in the head. And um, there's moderate evidence, but when you get kind of stuck in a pinch, you have to deal with moderate or poor evidence and, and go for it. But we do use that. Yeah, I think that's been my experience too. We see it occasionally. We'll use it on people that are have pretty refractory um, vasospasm, people that are going frequently and getting intervention, not just uh, not diagnostics. So yeah, the other thing that we will use on occasion for those refractory cases is intrathecal nicardipine. So that's you know um, dumping it into the EVD essentially in a very careful, calculated way, mm -hmm. um, but to let nicardipine dwell in the CSF space. I'd have to go back and see what the level of evidence on that is. But I, well, I mean, I know it's it's not very high, but it's, it's one of those, well, you're kind of stuck, so let's try it. Well, and I think you sort of alluded to this earlier, but I think a lot of the evidence that we follow for the treatment of people with particularly vasospasm and um, delayed, delayed cerebral ischemia is not great, right? We just, we just yeah. don't know enough about it, uh, except that it's bad. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a rough disease to have. I mean, the the epidemiology from the very beginning part. I mean, a ton of these people don't even make it to the hospital. They're just found dead out out in the community or in their home somewhere, and then a lot of people um, um, will die in the hospital from this. And then there's a lot of just long-term problems with um, cognitive and executive function and quality of life issues. And like, you know, you know, you're not, you're not in a nursing home, but you're not quite good enough to get back to work and get back to life even, you know, months out from this. All right. So um, at what point do you consider taking the EVD out? So our protocol for weaning this is kind of just eyeballing the daily drainage. So depending on how much, so we use that as kind of a, a proxy to figure out how much drainage do they need. And then uh, we raise the EVD about five once a day, make sure their exam's still okay. Maybe grab a CAT scan for good measure to say that their hydrocephalus is not developing. The next day, go up by five. Once we get up to 20, clamp it for a day. Everything's looking okay. Then it can come out. Um, that's that's the uh, the best case scenario. Sometimes it's go up, things get worse, come back down, try again in a day or three, try again, and go back and forth, go back and forth. Uh, but ultimately, um, some of these people um, will get uh, a, a arachnoid uh, granulation dysfunction, uh, and they're they won't be able to reabsorb their CSF at an adequate rate compared to their production. And some of these people will ultimately need to have a VP shunt placed. Um, but even that is complicated because the valves in those tend to get gunked up with very proteinaceous fluid, for example, blood breakdown products. So the people that end up with a VP shunt, it's not an early shunt. Um, and so we'll follow. I mean, every day or three, uh, the protein levels in the CSF aspirated from the EVD, uh, and then once that gets down to a lower lower amount of protein, then we can you know have a reasonable amount of confidence that we're not going to put in a shunt that's going to malfunction two days later. Um, now, in your experience, subarachnoid hemorrhage people tend to stay in the ICU for a pretty extended period of time, even uncomplicated ones. Yeah, if if they have pretty low grade from the outset and then don't have any complications. Um, 
sometimes, I don't know, like five, seven days or so, they can get out to the floor. Uh, but the people with the higher grade, uh, uh, the higher grading scores or um, people that have any of this vasospasm um, that we were talking about, um, that's easily looking at two or three weeks, um, uh, two or three weeks in the ICU. Yeah, I often tell folks uh, you're in for the worst vacation of your life. You're at the crappiest, most expensive hotel you've ever stayed in. <laughs> uh, because a lot of times these people, they feel fine, right? And they sit there and watch TV all day, but they're high risk for vasospasm. So yeah. we keep a close eye on them. So Yeah, they feel fine until they get Q1 hour neuro checks for two weeks yeah, straight. Exactly. And then they get goofy. So. Yeah. All right. Um, well, I think that's a pretty good point to wrap up the case i think unless you have further thoughts no i think we hit most of the the main features of managing an aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage it's a complicated well, disease it, it is and and it's one of those that i think that people who don't have experience with neuro don't realize you know how complicated neuro can be sometimes and, and it's a aneurysmal subarachnoid is a really good example of that brandon you have any thoughts or anything you want to add any last minute questions I have nothing to add. I think that was excellent. Great. I think so too. I think it was a good, good discussion. So Tom, thanks for joining us. Um, we hope that everybody has enjoyed the talk. It's been a good case, I think. And if you are not somebody who does neuro on a regular basis, hopefully it was interesting and educational. Well, thanks for having me. This was fun. All right. Well, thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time. <laughs>